This week's podcast is sponsored in part by the City of San Antonio's Department of Arts and Culture, which has a robust lineup of art to discover for free. Currently on view in the Centro de Artes Gallery in Historic Market Square is an exhibition inspired by the New York Foundation for the Arts Immigrant Artist Mentoring Program. Representing 12 countries, the artworks reflect on the multi-layered immigrant and first-generation experience. Make plans to visit the Centro de Artes Gallery today to explore this groundbreaking exhibit. Learn more at sanantonio.gov or follow on social media at GetCreativeSA. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I'm William Sarada. And I'm Jessica Fuentes. And today there's three of us on for this first segment. And then Jessica's going to hop off and William and I are going to talk about uh, galleries flocking to the Los Angeles art scene. There's all these New York galleries right now that are migrating opening second locations um i guess the pandemic didn't affect galleries how we thought and everyone's doing okay so everyone's opening up west coast la branches but first the three of us are going to talk about um the recent netflix series that came out a couple weeks ago called inventing anna um if you haven't followed this story the series is a quote-unquote fictionalized but also very rather accurate uh, story of Anna Sorokin um, who from like 2013 to 2017 she went by the name Anna Delvey she pretended to be a wealthy German heiress um, and she was basically trying to build this uh, social club in New York City and in the process she kind of got involved with some art world players. She got involved with some finance players and she essentially conned or was trying to con people out of money while also not paying bills uh, in the process. Um, So this has been a story in the art world. And if you read other art publications, you've probably seen a little bit about it. Or if you just like Shonda Rhimes riveting television series, you may have seen it or are planning to see it. Um, I don't know if there are really any spoilers at this point. You know, you learn pretty early on that she's a scammer and not a real heiress. So it's just kind of a comedy of errors a little bit after that. Um, But we wanted to talk about it in relation to in relation to the art world and kind of perceptions around the art world. But also, I mean, it ties a little bit in with the boom that's happening in L.A. that William and I will get to also. Um, But Jessica, William... Did y'all watch this series? What did y'all think about it? Or did y'all follow this story when it was happening? So I didn't really follow the story when it was happening. Um, You know, I definitely heard about it kind of in the background, but didn't really dig into any of the details. Um, And then recently when I was sick with COVID, I found myself looking for something to do and binge watched the whole show in a day. (laughs) 
uh, okay, yeah. So that's kind of how how I came to it, and um, and what I like my perspective on it right now. <laughs> William, did you follow it when it was like happening real time in the news? Because she was caught sometime in twenty nine. I think and then let's like the trial played out in the media like as its own thing also yeah when the cut piece came out I believe it was the cut piece that I read um it had kind of she had just sort of been detained and her myriad of misdeeds began to unravel on paper I read the piece and uh was familiar with it as it was happening And so I've started the show on Netflix, but I only got through episode two. Um, There's a lot of like, there's a lot of dramatizing what happened in the newsroom, which I think is not what's interesting about the story. Um, So I haven't gotten through the whole show yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel like that's part of it. It's it's the drama of her and her life and like the extravagance there's there's a lot of extravagant tv right now i mean there's a lot of a, a lot of series that are being made right now things like hbo's the righteous gemstones uh things like succession um it, it it's a lot of dramatization of rich people life <laughs> Uh, which, which i mean is kind of what tv has been in the past but i feel like it's gotten even more extravagant i don't know over the past 5 years yeah, I think more importantly, there's a, a trend, we could maybe call it, of um, not just rich people, but people that are sort of inflecting wealth, whether they have it or not. Um, I think the Anna Delvey story really blew up because we were ankle deep into a Trump administration, and people were very, they had an appetite for grifters or charlatans or fast talkers. Um the difference with the Anna Delvey story is that the setting is the art world instead of politics. Um, and it confirmed a lot of people's suspicions that in some ways the cultural sphere is uh, less altruistic than um, the actors within it say it is. I know what you're saying. There's, I feel like there's a barrier also in that people just don't know about the art world though like this this totally was in a very real sense set within the art world it's like uh this um this social club was going to be like a place for art exhibitions and a place for installations and centered around art and art was a central tenet and i thought that was going to be a, a larger factor in the show um but it ended up mostly being like peripheral conversations around that like you didn't really see you didn't really see her like visiting the venice biennale which actually happened in real life or you know engaging with art that much there were like one or two scenes in one scene there's a character at the whitney in another scene anna is like talking about a cindy sherman photograph but it seems like as we got deeper into the story the art really faded into the background and i to me I think that's just a almost a directorial choice because it's a really insular world and people kind of wouldn't be able to follow it as much as opposed to like politics and like White House intrigue is a lot more interesting than art world intrigue to a general public. 
I was kind of surprised by that, I guess. I One of the reasons why I wanted to watch it is because, um, you know, I was under the impression that it kind of centered around the art world and I was interested to kind of see that take. Um, and then I was surprised to see how much, just as you said, it kind of disappeared into the background of the story. And the story, to me, really kind of played as like uh, maybe commentary about um, influencers and and what it means to kind of like prop yourself up as a brand um, and kind of like the shallowness of that. Well, also just people's unquestioning uh, acceptance of things. Like if you're able to present yourself a certain way, I mean, it, it's really like a it's really a piece of social critique more than anything that if you present yourself a certain way and if you know the right lingo and if you wear the right clothes and you know probably also if you are white and have some semblance of culture people will generally kind of go along with your antics because there's also this like myth of the rich eccentric person that people tend to accept and want to believe in because those oftentimes are people that can have the capacity to end up doing great things. Like so many people who have done great things or, you know, made really interesting culture or art or movies, they're different, <laughs> maybe is the better word. They're, they're different in multiple capacities. They either may have kind of social issues or their mind works differently. And that's what that's what we say all the time at Glass Tower about artists in general. Artists look at the world differently. So if you kind of seem to come from a place with a pedigree and are that type of person, you're like a prodigy visionary in her case. Because she was also so young. So in case you're not familiar with the story, she was only born in 1991. So when she was doing all this in... 2013 to 2017 in New York, she was in her like early 20s. And that was part of the grift also because she was saying she was from Germany. She was saying she didn't have access to her trust fund until she turned 25. So all of this money kind of had to be fronted and that's why she quote quote couldn't pay for it. It's kind of parallel to the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos story in a way at least. Um, Anna Delvey said she was an heiress. She said that she had capital. She um, effectively convinced people that she was a good investment. She was trying to open a foundation, as you mentioned earlier, Brandon. Um, but in reality, there was like literally no money behind anything that she said or did she was simply able to talk her way into rooms up the chain where she could potentially access more and more money um elizabeth holmes kind of did a similar thing she got a lot of powerful people to believe in her and what it seems like happened is that she was she felt like she was going to inevitably reach um a technological benchmark, but she never actually had the technology to conduct blood tests at any point during um, her ascendancy. And Anna Delvey is kind of the same way, which, again, just gives light to this notion that in culture, you can pretend to be someone you're not, full stop, until 
everyone in the room believes you and then you've done it. To compare, I, I recently watched this documentary, I believe also on Netflix called The Tinder Swindler. Um, and it's about this man who manipulated multiple women out of hundreds of thousands or millions, uh, I think they concluded in the documentary, millions of dollars. And it was basically he would get them to take out loans and send him money. He would get them to send him credit cards that were in their name, and then he would spend on those cards. So it was kind of this perpetual grift of he would use one person's money to treat the next woman on like a lavish lifestyle and use that woman's money to you know, court another woman, and it was this perpetual grift. Um, it's, you know, the pseudo-gray area of being the perfect swindle of, like, he's not actually stealing, but he technically is, but he's not, because they're giving him their card willingly to spin stuff with the promise that it's going to pay back, but then he doesn't, you know, right. etc. So, what do y'all think? Is there a difference, or is there, what's that level of, like, gray area between something like that, where it's just kind of a perpetual swindle versus what she was trying to do? Because obviously she didn't, she lied, she created fake bank statements, like, Anna didn't have anything to back up what she was doing, like she was claiming, so she was lying to basically everyone she met. It's quite possible that had she received funding, that this thing she wanted to create could have easily come to fruition. Um, which in a way makes me feel bad for her that maybe she didn't have the direction or guidance of how to like achieve that goal in the legal and correct way, right? Like um, how could she have if she if she would have had, legitimate mentors and legitimate relationships um, with people in the business that she could be honest with about her um, her standing financially, but like her goal of what she wanted to achieve, then perhaps she could have um, gotten there the right way. When you compare that to like this uh, tender swindler <laughs> uh, that, that Brandon, you were talking about earlier. It just seems like um, what she wanted, what her end goal was, had a lot of viability to it. Um, and maybe it wasn't like as devious as these other types of like grifting. Mm-hmm. It would be really tempting in one sense to say that it was an end goal that not only would, of course, propelled her and kept her in the world she wanted to be in, but would have also done some sort of social good. However, it was going to be an elite private club, so it's not really a social... Like, if it was like a museum or a foundation in the sense of the foundation, like a, a foundation for giving or grant making or things like that, which, who knows, maybe that was like phase two once it actually had money in the coffers but so it, it would be tempting to be a little more like lenient or at least I would be tempted to be a little more lenient also if it was like you know she wanted to create a a home for youths <laughs> who were disadvantaged and and right. homeless and but but it, it's like it was an elite social club so it's like it's not necessarily like you know any of us would have benefited from the Anna Delvey Foundation, or most of New York wouldn't have benefited other than an increased, like, economy within the city, and then the social elite would have benefited from... So it's... 
it I feel like that mucks it up a little bit also. Yeah, absolutely. Um not to say that it was like this completely altruistic thing that she wanted to create. Um but it just I don't know, to me it, it seemed um like she had she had a reasonable plan. Um she just needed the backing uh, to get there. But uh, also, as William pointed out, you know, the the Netflix series um, kind of portrays her as somebody who is, you know, lost, misguided, maybe dealing with um, some other issues um, regarding her own like mental stability. Um, And so it's hard to really it's hard to know anything based on. Um, this kind of dramatization without really knowing who she is as a person. and Yeah, of course. Well, and uh, I mean, a dramatization about someone who is billed as a con artist who lied for years and got away with it. It's, it's hard to know even who someone is after that. Like there have been one or two interviews since she got out of prison. Uh, in case you don't know, she did, she was released from prison recently and then she was like a month later seized by uh ice because her visa had expired uh while she was in prison but um it, it's it, it's hard to read an interview with someone and where they're saying yes i've changed i think it was it, it's hard to know it, it's hard to know what to believe essentially And with that, we are going to bid adieu to Jessica. Thanks for joining us to talk about Anna Delvey. And William and I, after this word from our sponsors, will be right back to talk about New York galleries flocking to Los Angeles. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, the City of San Antonio's Department of Arts and Culture, which has a great lineup of art that you can discover for free. Currently, you can see at the Centro de Artes Gallery in Historic Market Square, an exhibition that is inspired by the New York Foundation for the Arts Immigrant Artist Mentoring Program. Works in the show represent 12 countries, and all of the pieces reflect on the multi-layered immigrant and the first-generation experience of the artists. You can make plans to visit the Centro de Artes Gallery today to explore this groundbreaking exhibit. You can learn more at sanantonio.gov or by following San Antonio's Department of Arts and Culture on social media at Get creative S.A. And we are back. So William and I are here and we're going to talk about galleries moving from New York to L.A. So 
Back when the pandemic first started, uh, Christina Reese, our editor-in-chief, and I had a few podcasts where we talked about the viability of galleries moving forward throughout the pandemic. Um, To be quite honest, we had a very real concern that about six months in or even a year and a half into the pandemic, we would see a ton of closures, which hasn't really been the case in Texas, thankfully, but it also doesn't seem to be the case among uh, certain tiers of galleries in uh, major cities. So recently, last weekend, there were a few art fairs in Los Angeles. And in the lead up to those art fairs happening, there were a number of galleries who have spaces in New York. Most of these are kind of mid, like upper mid-tier galleries uh, who are moving or who are opening second locations, rather, in Los Angeles. There are some higher tier galleries like Pace Gallery, it seems like essentially is quote-unquote partnering or I think kind of bought out uh, an existing Los Angeles gallery. Uh, David Zwerner, one of the big Chelsea galleries, is going to open a uh, huge space in Los Angeles in 2023. Uh, But William, we've been following some other spaces who aren't necessarily like mega galleries, but who are making the move also. Yeah, like uh, Region Projects, the whole Deech Projects, Moran Moran. These are all people that you see at the fine art fairs in Texas, in California, and New York. Um, And yeah, just this season, it's been a huge flurry. They've all dedicated time and space in Los Angeles. Um, It almost feels like the most resounding answer to the question, is California a real city where you can make and sell art? Um, as of this season, the resounding answer is yes, because all the galleries are there. So um, these gallery announcements and move-in dates have kind of surrounded uh, the current season of art fairs in LA. So uh, Freeze opened an edition in LA, and there's also some satellite fairs like Felix, which was hosted at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Um, so, I mean, there's just a there's just a ton of activity in LA right now. There have been quite a few uh, articles about this, and quite a few quotes that I've seen from different gallerists. And of course, the the quote is. The quote is a variation always on this idea about why they're moving to L.A. And, of course, it's a quote that makes sense for their business model. And it's that they've been selling more art to L.A. collectors. And it's that they have also been making more relationships with L.A. institutions. And I feel like the institution part has been in more or less every quote that I've seen. And I feel like that's the real reason on this move to L.A. Because if these galleries are regularly showing artists who could be acquired by MoCA or LACMA or the Hammer or, most importantly, probably the Broad Museum, um, it's it's a very quick way to propel their artists' prices even higher and to propel the status of their artists even higher. Of course, this, this may be a little bit of a skeptical view, but... Obviously, galleries opening in L.A. is because they think they can sell art and because they think they can expand the market and because they can up the price of their artists because that's 
the general goal for a lot of these galleries. Um, so I find it interesting that there's a lot of these mid-tier galleries, even places like uh, Sean Kelly, Sergeant's Daughters, and Shrine are partnering together. Uh, Sergeant's Daughters and Shrine, these are galleries in New York, um, ones that you may be a little less familiar with. I know they're ones that I am familiar with on social media, but I don't think I've ever actually visited whenever I've gone up. Um, I've meant to, but they just haven't made the list. But these sorts of spaces, or even a place like The Hole, which maybe sells work for a little uh, more expensive than like Surgeon's Daughters or Shrine, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that these galleries have the capacity to make this move, because obviously not only is rent an issue, but I mean, shipping work, if they're going to be dealing with New York artists cross-country, is kind of crazy. Like, it, it really, this to me indicates that either there is major speculation right now, or there's major capital, or the most likely answer, there's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, the total momentum is kind of shocking. It almost reminds me of the April Fool's piece we posted a couple years ago about Dallas galleries teaming up and opening super sites. Um, And that piece was kind of funny because it's exciting. And then you read all the way through and you're like, oh, this is this is kind of unlikely to happen it's there's a lot of coordination that would have to go down but it's that's kind of what's playing out in these news pieces um the more you read about them and it i i agree brandon it does sort of a smell of speculation but somebody's got to have a guarantee in there somewhere or else you know i think it i think it's likely that people might some galleries might jump on to the bandwagon while like maybe the core group that sort of has uh, entrenched plans put their foot down and, and settle down there. But yeah. Well, I like the quote also. There's, I feel like I saw this once or twice in some of the articles that we'll link to in the reading list on Glass Tire for this podcast. But um. <sighs> I feel like I saw the quote once or twice that, you know, LA is really, LA is like a good place for art now. And LA, like LA is going to, and I, I, I'm just, I, I thought that was kind of already the case. Like maybe these galleries didn't have two outposts in LA, but I thought we kind of all collectively knew that at this point that, you know, that LA is essentially the second art city in the U S but a lot of the quotes that I've seen are people being like, well, LA is developed into the second art scene in the, and it's like, I mean, ever since artists started coming out of like the graduate programs in Los Angeles in like the seventies and eighties, I thought that was, that was pretty clear that this was the trajectory that LA was on and had already accomplished. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the faculty of Cal arts, those people did, exactly. they did not move there two years ago, they're some of the biggest legends in culture, like, period, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, the light and space artists who were an L.A. move, like, I feel like if you have distinctive art historical movements that have come out of your city, like, multiple, I, f- I, I don't know, that the quote just kind of rings a little hollow to me, like, yeah, 
you don't have to justify your move to LA at this point. Yeah, I in some of the like memes surrounding this, um, you know, especially Jerry Gagosian, there's always kind of like an implicit or an explicit undergirding that like people are excited about LA as an art city, like in capital letters now, but it is also like who are the collectors? Where are the collectors? Are they there? Do we know the collectors? Are they secret names still? Um, the battle that LA has with like legitimizing its role in the cultural scene uh, nationally is is exhausting because simultaneously LA is like the mo- the place where literally every movie comes from. There's tons of great art programs out there, really powerful museums. But at the same time, people are like, yeah, but nobody buys art here. And it's like, well, how much of this is true? How much of this is just sort of like... Local complaining. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, every city has that. Every city... Um, I was at the Dallas Art Fair, and, and a Houston artist came up to me and was like, you know, we don't have the collectors in Houston that we have in Dallas. And I'm like, is that just like a wives' tale, or like how true is that? You know, um, there's a lot of there's a whiff of uh, there's a whiff of grass is always greener in some of these statements about galleries moving to LA. Like, I mean, you know, it's uh, who wouldn't love to take a five hour flight from New York and land at their beautiful LA gallery that has a parking lot and has all of these things that they would never, even as upper tier galleries, they would never be able to have in New York. That is, I wrote some similar notes myself, Brandon, that like, and this is all, this is a little, a little speculative, but after the, the pandemic wiped out, like, rental values in New York, and then they've all come back uh, completely. Um, Maybe there's some immediate evaluations from the business standpoint that's like, well, hey, rent's the same price in LA and you get three times the square footage. So let's just do that. And everyone will go because people want to go to a party. Um, Reading the description of the Felix Art Fair at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, I thought, yeah, that sounds really fun. <laughs> that sounds the sun's in your eyes, mimosas are in your hand. You're at like a beautiful, you know, a uh, hotel with a bunch of fun people looking at art. It's worlds away from cramping into a pavilion in uh, you know, from from the piers at New York. Exactly. I mean, literally those piers. Yeah. Um so I'm a little curious to see if, like, this is just some kind of pent-up pandemic uh, excitement, and I wonder if it'll fizzle out. But I mean, if they're if they're buying, buying, leasing, renting square footage in Los Angeles, um, everyone involved at least is looking at this six to twelve months out. You know, probably mm-hmm. longer. Oh, longer. Yeah, well, I, I was surprised actually, kind of the the timeline of this, and I wonder if the pandemic has affected it one way or the other. Because so I, I don't know if I had fully realized, but Gagosian has had an LA area location since '95, and then Hauser and Worth, the the, the most recent 
kind of move out to LA that people that really turned heads was Hauser and Worth in 2016 um, when they took this I mean it's a complex it has multiple buildings and gallery spaces it has a restaurant it's a mini museum basically it's, it's kind of like an open air mall style almost I mean it's more elevated than that but like yeah by the by like the blueprint of the space that is kind of what it's like yeah so I wonder if this would have happened sooner had it not been for the pandemic or or if the pandemic really hurried it along because I remember in 2016 whenever that opened it was a big deal and the staff that they got to work in the space was a big deal like this was a major move for a gallery kind of staking its claim and investing in LA as an art space um, and it makes sense again Hauser and Worth has the capital to do that because they're a mega gallery but still it it makes sense now that places like um, Zwerner, David Zwerner, are following, and I'm surprised that it took what it's been six years since then. Um, it it seems like being six years behind Hauser and Worth is a little bit missing the bandwagon. It's kind of a long time. Do you think that these leases maybe got signed during the pandemic, and they're just moving in now? I feel, I mean, my gut would tell me that the pandemic delayed everything because I think when the pandemic began, everyone just, I mean, everyone hoarded cash because why wouldn't you? Like, no one knew what the result was going to be. But then probably a year in, once galleries realized that they weren't closing and they were actually doing just as good as before the pandemic or better because people weren't spending money on other things. You know, people weren't traveling internationally. People weren't really even traveling across the U S people were sitting in their homes, looking at the art that they had or the blank walls that they had and deciding that they wanted something new to look at. Um, so I feel like that was felt, you know, all the way to the top on the gallery, uh, on the chain of galleries and, that's probably when galleries also who didn't have an LA branch started getting more inquiries from LA based collectors. And then they may have slowly figured out that there were more people who were interested in buying art than they had known before. This is all complete speculation, by the way, but it's a chain of events that would make sense and is kind of bolstered by some of the anecdotes that I've heard locally. Yeah, I was just going to say something that is not speculation. Um, I won't name anybody, but yeah, more than one dealer at the local level has told me, listen, this is our best year ever. Um, So it's people are buying art and people are selling art. That's for sure. And the the pandemic has been a direct uh, cause of that. Um, At least that's what some dealers would tell you um, the correlation between sales and the global health crisis. It's one-to-one. Um, so yeah, it, the same must be true in Los Angeles. Uh, they need, they need something new to look at. That's for sure. And we're going to leave you with that. Uh, thank you for listening today. If you haven't watched inventing Anna on Netflix, 
Give it a watch if you like riveting television. If you want to learn more about galleries that are moving to L.A., we will include a bunch of links within this post on Glass Tire. You can find that on our website. And uh, that's it. If you have time and if you want to, we encourage you to check out our event listings and go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.